Hello everyone, this is Unapologetic episode 4. Today we will be talking about sexuality. I'm Maria. I'm Anna. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Unapologetic. Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place. I wonder how. And everybody sings in peace. There's only one thing that we need. It's unapologetic. So, as Maria was saying, we today are going to be talking about sexuality, which is a different lens or topic than the one we've been talking about for the past three episodes, which was gender. And to start, I think it's fair to kind of introduce or describe what we intend and and understand as sexuality. So we mostly find like two main, I guess, areas that we're going to be talking about throughout the next three episodes when we think of sexuality. And that is, first of all, um, topics related to the expression of one's sexual receptivity, so basically in relation to sexual orientation, and how someone perceives their own like, yeah, sexual desires towards other people, you know. And the second part of sexuality, it's also um, the way in which human humans act as sexual beings. So, sexuality also includes how we are. Um, yeah, like animals, but we still act in sexual ways. And society has also a very interesting, you know, perspective in relation to those sexual ways. They're, they don't just go by and, like, nothing matters, you know. So I think that's also something important to bear in mind. Like, there are different aspects to sexuality and we're going to be focusing mainly in the two of them. But today, we're particularly going to be talking about... Um, sexual identity and their relationship with capitalism <laughs> and certain other uh, I guess yeah connotations this has and in the next episode we'll dive more into the sexual nature of humans and we'll see how there's different ways to see sexuality as bad or good and that sort of thing and it's good to bear in mind that today uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about about sexuality is really rooted in the West, and we are very aware of that. Um, so we want you to keep that in mind. And in the third episode of Sexuality in two months, we'll go more in depth on decolonializing all that we're talking about. But we think that what um, we have to say here is also quite important. Yeah, and I think we, we'll deal more on this like Western ontology, sexuality, perception thing later. Uh, but it's just like fair warning before we start. And before we start, um, we think we should have a disclaimer. We know that we're using queer as an umbrella term, but we're also aware that some people don't like this term and it comes from a history of discrimination and we are very aware of that. Um, but also queer theory, that's how it's called and that's how authors use the term. Um, so we just stick with that. Also, we will try to be as inclusive as possible with our language in terms of not only talking about homophobia, which happens very often, uh, but we're also going to talk about different kind of like hates and phobias that uh, people from the LGBTQ plus community experience. So queer phobia, biphobia, um, um Yeah, just wanted to clear that before we start. 
So I think just like a kind of because when you said like the queer term is contested, I think uh, it is worth kind of explaining why because the queer, yeah. the word queer in English also because I don't know, but I'm not a native speaker, so sometimes like I just learn things and I'm like, yes. oh, this is how it is. But then when you think about the history of the word queer in English means something different from the norm. So which basically this word is reinforcing the idea that being heterosexual is normality yeah but also like this word also represent um reappropriation of the term so personally i think it's a really important word to use but i understand that other people don't feel the same way and that's a hundred percent okay and valid yeah so basically we just want to say that we know that it's not always okay to use it especially when it's used in a derogatory way but we're using it in, in its sort of appropriated um way that suggests that we take it and we embrace it, at least to some extent, in this episode. In relation to that, well, we mentioned a very queer theory, which was mostly born in the 80s, like late 70s, 80s, right after, yeah, a lot of victories for the LGBTQ community in the global north in relation to their rights, civil rights. Um, And we... We've all read this particular work by John D'Amelio, uh, which is called Capitalism and Gay Identity. So you're just like, no, straight up, you know what we're talking about. Uh, it was written in 1979. So it's like right in the middle of like this development of queer theory. And because of that, it's also very 70s. So it might feel a little bit outdated to us now, you know, 50 years later. Oh my god, so so much time. Um, but yeah, so the idea behind this text, and this is kind of why we're like citing it here, is that uh, the gay identity as we know it in the West was not always um, the same. And he wants to, with this text, kind of like... Um, debunk the myth that gays and lesbians always existed. So his argument is that gay and lesbian behavior always existed, but this idea of gayness as an identity, and I say gay because he mostly refers to homosexual men and homosexual women. He doesn't like really go into like other kinds of queer behavior, quote unquote. Um, that kind of thing as an identity was born later on in the 19th century and it's kind of just a response of like what the capitalist system would allow okay so a little bit of like background knowledge on like how the capitalist is like how he perceives the capitalist system is like a system of production right and so he argues that families like this idea of nuclear families were allowed kind of in society because they really fitted the modes of production. So you had, you know, men going out to work and women taking care of the social reproduction. So, you know, taking care of the home and whatever. And that that functioned for capitalism. But with the development of um, these, um, then there is not such need as a nuclear family anymore. So that's why gay and lesbian couples can now freely exist because also freedom is a very important part of capitalism yeah i think then um i think he really tied it to the emergence of like big cities because he was talking about mainly like new york in the u.s and how there 
like a big LGBTQ activist group started existing because there they all lived within a big city where like nuclear modes of production were not very necessary but we still see that in more rural areas even nowadays that's not so much the case yeah and just to go back to what anna was saying about the milieu only using um, gay and lesbian as an identity it also doesn't take into account the fact that like many people were happy in the relationship um, for example, like what we define now as bisexual or pansexual, um, but still they didn't live their life to like the fullest because they didn't, they were not aware even maybe of um, their sexuality. So that's very important to recognize. So basically, the point of this text is to make us question and reconsider what is it that we can like we call a gay identity, because suddenly it's become this like trade of that people you know like either like it becomes something that you really are and that inherently like changes your lifestyle and i think an important part of this text is the nuclear family an important capitalist concept so basically um the heteronormative way the family should function um so the woman stays home and does the um like gender labor the man goes to work, and then you have children that become like another form of labor. Um, yeah, and, and it's very important to think about whenever you read this text. Yeah, and another thing that I personally really took from this, uh, and we'll kind of go into it a bit more later, is the fact that before um, there always existed a homosexual behavior, but it never was such a big part of someone's life and a lot of the times it was also taboo so then people wouldn't really like base their whole like lifestyle around it but now we see that that has changed and there's a whole identity and a lot of it is based on the way that we consume yeah and like from a capitalist capitalist point of view being gay you're identifying within the lgbtq community also means that you're not profitable like you can't have a nuclear family with like the man goes to work, the woman stays home, feeds the children. Um, so in that way, it's not profitable. But at the same time, capitalism also created another way um, to benefit from um, the LGBTQ community. So for example, we can talk about pinkwashing. Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, pinkwashing, it's like this uh, movement amongst corporation of making everything gay-friendly just because that sells. So... For instance, uh, I think a clear example of pinkwashing is like uh, having a gay character in movies. So you don't really care about depicting a complex character that is also part of the LGBTQ community, but it's more like, yeah, let's just have this token gay in the movie. And therefore, like, all gay people are gonna wanna watch this. Which makes no sense, but it's kind of like how. It's like a strategy to attract a certain audience and consumers. Um, and I mean, I use the example of movies, but then this also happens with like companies that sell like products with yeah. a, a rainbow flag. But then I don't know, do they really like care about like uh, people from the LGBTQ community being hired by their company? I don't know. Yeah, I guess we can see it in. I think I in Greece, for example, I, I saw it a lot in the in gay pride, and like in the past, it was 
really small and really like taboo and in the in the past couple of years like four or five years it started becoming more popular and a lot of people would actually go there and it was like a thing it was like kind of cool you know it started happening in the biggest square of the of the country so yeah it started becoming like the norm or something that was accepted and then a lot of really big companies started wanting to sponsor it and i think that really shows the pinkwashing like these companies don't get don't care but um you see that they wanted to sponsor it because they saw that a lot of people would take their products in this event and all those sort of things and yeah i think it really comes to show that like it's used as a monetary yeah just to make money and i get some people may think that this is a good thing um because you see more like quote-unquote inclusivity but at the same time it's so dangerous because like it takes the queer identity and it makes it a commodity which can be bought and sold um and this is not allyship to the lgbtq plus community it's just using um people and that's also an argument that the media makes that certain strategies that the lgbtq community might have to fight for their own rights sometimes end up not being productive at all so in this case we're talking about like this uh, you know promoting visibility but then you're also maybe promoting stereotypes about um people from the lgbtq community and he was saying that how uh, this discord of saying gay people were always here we always existed you just didn't see us created the whole process of um coming out and the idea that gay people are closeted and need to announce to the world that they're gay or that they're queer in any form and you know so yes it might have been beneficial for them to create this myth of like gay identity was um timeless and we were always here you just were not aware but on the other hand now we have this whole culture of having to disclose your sexuality every time you go to a place because of you know how yeah historically they try to reclaim or like fight for their own rights. So sometimes something that you perceive to be good for the sake of visibility or whatever will end up having, you know, like a counter effect that you were not maybe aware of. Yeah, and going back to like the stereotypes that you mentioned earlier and like back to like capitalism and stuff, it's also like interesting to think about the way that um, a lot of people, like we said, that are that identify as queer need to somehow show to the world that they are queer and they do that through the things that they consume we see that with like yeah if if a a show is very lgbtq friendly you'll watch that and you watch it with your friends or you will you'll dye your hair a certain way you'll have certain piercings and they somehow code that you might like might give a message to someone seeing you that you are queer and i think that's very interesting um to think about the way that like we need to show in a certain way what we feel inside through the means of consumption yeah so i think maybe to wrap up what like demilio was saying in relation to capitalism and uh, the gay identity his argument is that there was always queer behavior it's just that some it was just not considered to be queer sometimes and it was only in, in the 19th century that we started linking that to an identity and 
later on it was for the fight for uh, civil rights. Um, but this is also intrinsically linked with capitalist mode of production. And because the mode of production today allows for more freedom from that nuclear family, it is that uh, this queer identity can be accepted and profited from eventually. And I think, as we were saying before, uh, this is a very Western framework we're working with right now because it's very capitalist, it's very based in the global north. And we're using it though because we are located in the Netherlands, we all come from countries that are very Western thinking. So this is the way that we were kind of conditioned to think about in relation to sexuality. And we think it's not fair to try to include in one episode all these different ways that sexuality can be conceived in the world because they just don't fit in 45 minutes and it's not fair to do that. Plus, we also don't want to like portray them as like, oh, this quirky way that like sexuality can be perceived in this other part of the world. Personally, I think it's like a different framework that people can think uh, sexuality in terms of and it it's not translatable to like uh, western terms like these frameworks are like different ontologies different ways of conceiving the world so we are sticking today to this western framework that doesn't mean we want like uh, we consider it superior or anything it's just how we are conditioned to thinking so we think it makes sense to just use this framework for today's episode at least yeah, and we'll do our best to try to bring different perspectives in the third episode um, of the sexuality section of this podcast. And we hope to do it just as then when we have more time to talk about it more in, in detail. Now moving forward, I wanted to bring an, a different perspective of sexuality. Um, and it's more like in relation to how sexuality might be inherent or biological or might be more of a social construction in some way. Um, and to start off, I wanted to kind of discuss the idea that a lot of um, people from the LGBTQ community, especially more in the past but still today, um, will say that they were born this way and it's something that they cannot change. And this started, kind of started around the 60s or 70s um, in the West when Christian anti-LGBTQ people would say that this is a deviant and disgusting choice that these people are making and it was something very taboo and people would say, no, actually, it's not a choice. It just happens to me and there's nothing I can do. I was born this way. Like even Lady Gaga's song... I was born this way or whatever it's called is like an anthem for a lot of LGBTQ plus community members because they're like, I really was this way. There's nothing I can change about it. Um, whether it's good or bad, this is who I am. And it comes from a place that really was trying to protect these people because there was um, a lot of the times there were conversion therapies. I don't know if you know it, but basically conversion therapy is when like people that show non-heterosexual behavior will be taken to different places that will do shock therapy or will do all sorts of 
different things that will try to make the body go against its way of thinking of like, oh, I'm attracted to the same gender or whatever, and try to train the brain, essentially, to not want to do that anymore through pain, through trauma and all sorts of things. And that was always super, super dangerous for people from this um, community because it made them want to commit suicide, it made them depressed, and it was really, really dangerous. And so people saying, this is not a choice, I really cannot change this, this is how I was born, was extremely important for these people to try to protect themselves and their communities. Yeah, so I guess when we understand this... uh this yeah kind of mechanism of like un- explaining quote unquote like queer behavior we need to really take into account the context that it was happening and yeah how it responds to the context and everything yeah exactly i think it's extremely important to think about that and recently there was this large scale genetic research in published in august of 2019 that showed that there is actually is no one gene that can really like determine someone's um, sexuality and sexual behaviors or romantic behaviors, I guess. Um, and they basically showed that there's there are different genes. I think they found like 28 or something um, that can show that you are prone to be um, not heterosexual, I guess but they can never truly really be the reason that someone is heterosexual no homosexual yeah um i really like the debate in the sense that i really like this form of empowerment of i was born this way um but at the same time like the fact that they have to at any cost like find the gene as if like first of all what is homosexuality you know what makes you gay what makes you bi you know we first have to define what these terms are. And and then also, to me, it feels a lot like in order to be accepted, we have to prove that it's biological. So there is a, like an extent, like a degree of essentialism in this, um, you know, in this argument. And I'm not sure I really like it because it feels like you're not accepted unless we say you are. And also, like, when when we're talking about context, for example, if you like living in Amsterdam, um, which is a very, very LGBTQ friendly, um, I mean, not that much, but it's quite friendly. And, you know, I thinking about living maybe like in a small town in Italy, it's such a different thing, you know, like it's mm. so much, such a different context. Like here you have space to explore, to question, but like, if you live with your parents, um, who maybe are very conservative, in a very small town, you you don't have that kind of space. So definitely, the way that, yeah, you deal with your sexuality and like the arguments that you will feel more comfortable with for, you know, not justifying, but I guess protecting yourself, differ and matter according to where you are standing. Like even like yeah, time-wise or you know, geographically. That really does change. Context matters. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, so there was this um, Dr. Lisa Diamond, a psychology and gender studies professor, that um, 
made a TED talk, which I watched, and I think she said really important things. And the TED talk was called Why the Born This Way Argument Doesn't Advance LGBT Equality. And she did this in 2018. Yeah, she basically was saying that using the argument that you were born this way is basically saying that being non-heterosexual is something that is kind of tragic, is something that you don't want to be. It's something that you have guilt for, shame for, but you were born this way. You can't really change it. Whether you want it or not, it's just there. And I think what she was saying, and I agree, is that we put a value judgment to not being heterosexual that is below the norm, which is um, being heterosexual and liking the opposite gender and all those sorts of things. So I think... Um, yeah, it's important to note that we don't need those value judgments and they can just be on the same sort of level. They don't have to be lesser of. I think also connecting to what Sarah was saying also of like this essentializing idea of homosexuality as something that's like, it's always the same and this is the category and this is how it's studied. The born this way argument by mentioning the idea of birth gives the idea that you are queer since the moment you're born and you know it the moment you're born and that it also invalidates the experience of a lot of people that just like you know change their behavior later in life and I think it's also valid to know that like sexuality is not or at least I don't know I don't I haven't read anything about like um yeah queer behavior I think queer behavior can be more fluid. That's the point I was trying to make and did not come through at all. But the point was like, um, this uh, argument can invalidate those experiences because they're telling you you're going to be homosexual your whole life and this is how it is and you're in this box and now you can't exit the box anymore. So if you think about it, it's just us restraining us saying like, okay, now you are... I mean, without all the oppression, basically, but... (laughs) (laughs) I think like, yeah, you're heterosexual and this is what you are and you can't do anything else. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think this argument really uh, restrains people in the sense that once they give you that label, that means you cannot explore, you cannot doubt, you cannot question. And yeah, it's just so dangerous. And I think we can see what Maria was saying, like, reflected in what many people say. I've heard so many times, like, the argument, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, sure, like, gay people exist, just to you know, doesn't mean that it's normal. Like, you know, I had a conversation this summer about this, yes. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the fact that, sure, they exist because they were born that way, but at the same time, like, it doesn't mean that they're normal because it's not on the same level as heterosexual love. And Yeah, Yeah, and I think, uh, like, in relation to fluidity, I think it's important to note that, like, even within the LGBTQ community, a lot of the times we see that more fluid... Um, experiences might be discriminated against even within the community because if you are, for example, bisexual, you might be seen as someone that is just not being able to choose what they want and like having a more different experience where you might figure out that you like something that isn't the very norm uh, later in life is then less valuable because it's like, ah, you just randomly decided to do this and you were not born this way. And so, yeah, this kind of born this way argument then is invalidating other experiences that might be more fluid and more and less like 
only one way from the very beginning. Um, and we believe that that can be also kind of problematic. Yeah, exactly. Like, even the fact that you have to define yourself, you know? Um, I think still, like, many people cannot see sexuality as 100% fluid in the sense, you know, I'm a human with its emotions for other people. And many times, like, when you don't know how to, like, identify yourself, you just say, oh, I'm pansexual or, mm. you know, I'm just queer um, because that's, like, an umbrella term. But it just goes back to the fact that, like, we cannot see sexuality as 100% fluid. Yeah. So going back to, like, the social constructedness of it, we can see how it really depends. Like you said earlier, like, the context really matters because there's different different circumstances that might um, allow you to explore, that might allow you to question yourself and say, huh, actually, I could try that. And it might end up being something that you are interested in. And being in Amsterdam, for example, or being in a little village really does make a difference because if it's something that you cannot talk about, if it's something that you cannot explore at all, then you won't. And the context and the place and the circumstances really do matter in kind of shaping someone's sexuality, at least I believe. Um, and so saying that you were just born this way does not leave room for that because then that says that making a choice based on your circumstances is wrong because then it is a choice and it's something that we should be against. But we're trying to say that there shouldn't be any value judgment in having a choice to choose that, basically. Now that we've talked a bit about essentialism as well, we think it's important to talk about the hypersexualization of uh, queer people. We know that this is more of a superficial topic, but it's really important to talk about as well. Because I don't think we realized how much um, queer people are sexualized. So when it comes to gay, bi, queer love in general, many people um, think of when, when they came out, they felt very dehumanized and sexualized in the sense that anything that is not straight love it's sex. Um, it goes like below hetero, like heterosexuality. We can see that in a lot of ways in which, like, if you are seen as a bisexual or as a lesbian, uh, maybe someone will say, "Oh, maybe we can have a threesome," or "Oh, do you scissor?" Or as soon as someone might hear about your your sexuality that is not heterosexual, they might immediately think of you having sex which is kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, and not only that, but also, like, the predatory, uh, going back to essentialism, queer people are seen as of predatory na nature, and that's why many, like, queer kids really feel uncomfortable in locker rooms, because they're afraid of how the other people are going to perceive them. And we hear this a lot. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of this idea that I think it comes from, like, a place of like fragile heteronormativity in which uh, you feel like oh you were lied you didn't disclose that you were queer so mm -hmm. you were like you know what do you call this like you know stalking me or something mm -hmm. because you didn't say you were gay and 
that's kind of like what how this stereotype of like the predatory queer person arises, I think. And and in the end it just becomes dangerous for the person from the LGBTQ community because then they are like perceived as bad and like uh, having ill intentions. Yeah, I think one example could be how like once someone comes out to like their best friend or something and if they're not super open they might be like oh that's fine but do you like me you know i think i feel like i've even experienced this i think um when i came out i was like but do you like me i was like no this is not about you and i think that happens often where as soon as someone tells you that they like the gender you are and that's not heterosexual immediately they think oh do they like me then and you feel threatened but why do we have to feel threatened by non-heterosexual people i think that's a bit questionable yeah and to go back to what anna was saying like disclosing you don't owe that to anyone like i feel like whenever that happens like the straight person in question feels like it's about them but if a person didn't tell you it's for their safety and this happens with like trans people as well when they don't disclose and people get mad oh why didn't you tell me that's so disrespectful no they're trying to be safe to not die to not be like victims of hate crimes like there's a reason why they don't feel safe telling you and i think that that is, is where the question lies you know yeah there's a bit of like entitlement of i need to know this about you about your very intimate moments i need to know it because it's different and it feels weird and i need to know all the details about your life that do not have anything to do with me and i think it's it's not very nice yeah and especially if you like during the aids pandemic like queerness was associated with so much like sexual stigma also like filthiness um in a way like the fact that the AIDS pandemic was a virus, it was associated with, like, queerness in itself. Like, because you're queer, then you're going to, like, spread the virus. Mm. Yeah, and, of course, like, the AIDS pandemic particularly um, had an impact on queer, poor, um, black communities. So, you know, there is a, a lot to unpack and talk about in terms of intersectionality when it comes to hypersexualization, especially of people of color, and sexual stigma, and I... and filthiness in a way i think it's also particularly interesting to think about the AIDS pandemic as we are experiencing a pandemic in at the moment and just see how much it repeats this like whole like scapegoating of like yes this is all due to the queers this is all due to asian people and again um yeah you know just question our position in this whole uh, context and yeah I don't know just think about it <laughs> yeah I think it's so easy to demonize uh, marginalized communities and then all these stereotypes arise that are really hard to then break down it's like oh if you're gay then you must have age I don't want to come close to you you'll give it to me you know all these sorts of things and it's the same with uh, we saw with Asian communities at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone that was Asian was assumed to come from China and have the virus and um it's really dangerous actually for these communities and it can cause actual like physical and mental harm that is really hard to undo and to stay on the topic of hypersexualization i think it's so important to talk about woman loves woman um sexualization 
we're not saying lesbian couple because two women being together can also be two bisexual women mm-hmm. or yeah so when it comes to this it's about the idea that women together cannot exist in themselves like by themselves you know it has to be like still an object to like the male view the male pleasure yeah. we've talked about this a bunch of times already in like previous episodes but it's always for the consumption of a male so therefore that that's how like hyper sexualized women being together are yeah like i mentioned earlier like if you if you tell a man like at the bar hey i have a girlfriend they're like oh maybe we can have a threesome it's like no i just love my girlfriend and you can leave me alone you know (laughs) so i guess yeah like that was most of what we had prepared for today but as always we have some takeaways prepared for you because it's always nice to wrap up (laughs) and yeah the first one i think being uh that right now we ended an episode on sexuality but we constructed it using a very western framework that's influenced by capitalist modes of production and that's basically what D'Amelio argued in his text this connection between production and then the freedom to have a gay identity or not have it recognized. Then we talked about uh, the biological and social aspects of sexuality which we believe are both very important uh, but we need to think about which contexts they are both coming from and acknowledge the importance of both arguments. Yeah, and lastly, we talked about the hypersexualization of queer people. So always keep in mind, whenever you have thoughts or hear people say something, always question, because I think that's the main takeaway from the podcast in general. Question, please. <laughs> everything you do, everything you think. So, yeah, thank you very much for listening to us again. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We'll have more recommendations over there. And, yeah, see you next month. See you all. Bye. Bye.